I certainly don't speak for the entire community and some people would disagree with this approach. Uh, I try to avoid gendering people until they have told me how they want uh, to be known. Um, and this is a, an active practice because I don't just mean like I don't do it verbally. Like I try in my mind to just leave open that I don't know this about a person, just like I don't know where they grew up. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. Welcome to the fifth installment of Stigma is Curable. Our guest today is Dr. Sebastian Barr. We are going to talk about mental health and well-being for trans and non-binary folks today. And we're really excited to have you here. Really appreciate all of you checking in on Facebook Live and on Zoom. Um, you know, we've been blessed to get grants from the Mass Cultural Council and the Belchtown Cultural Council to, to do these monthly events. And we're very excited to keep moving forward. So thank you all for coming today and everyone who's participated before. Um, a little bit about the Promethean Project. We're a nonprofit wellness center that's aimed to build community uh, around mental health and, and holistic health and well-being and just bringing a a conversational piece to all of this stuff and, and breaking down the stigma. So we initiated the stigma is curable movement that we're doing this year to speak about different stigmas and, and all of those fields. So we're super honored to have uh, Dr. Sebastian Barr come and, and be our guiding force today. He has a presentation that he's going to do. So I'm going to kick it over to him in a minute. And then we're going to have a, a question and answer portion. So really excited to, to do a deeper dive in this and Really appreciate all of you and honor all of you who are with us today. All right, Sebastian. Thank you. I'm really excited to um, be here. Let me get my screen shared. So quickly, just a little bit about me and um, my background. I am a counseling psychologist and I work as a therapist. Um, and also as a researcher, and I do training and education around trans mental health. Um, oh, I also am aware that sometimes the recording can be pretty low volume from this, so I'm going to hold my microphone. Um, but so I, I come to this talk with experience uh, from my professional world and my training, uh, clinical experience. I'm also an openly transgender man myself. And so I bring in some personal and community-based experience as well. A lot of what we're going to be talking about today, I'm drawing specifically from the research because fortunately there's been a lot of research on what helps uh, trans people and non-binary people 
face the challenges that exist in society and um, come out with uh, resilience and well-being and happiness and joy. And so we're going to talk about all of the features of this. So I do want to start off with some terminology discussion, um, just make sure that we're all on the same page. These are the, the, the main things that I wanna drive home that gender identity, gender expression, biological sex and sex assigned at birth are all different. Um, gender identity is an internally held sense of how a person fits into systems of gender. Um, so for much of us uh, in Western society, we think about, are we a man? Are we a woman? Are we non-binary? Something outside of that. Um, Gender expression is how we display our gender outwardly. Uh, biological sex is a constellation of our chromosomes, our anatomy, our hormones, and secondary sex characteristics. And then sex assigned at birth is a designation that is made at birth, usually just based on external genitalia. And in the United States, that's either male or female. Um, we know that uh, biological sex is a lot more complicated than that and that people are um, intersex as well. But in the United States currently, we get a sex assignment of male or female. So the historical white Western model of gender is this gender binary that groups people into two boxes, men and women, um, or for kids, you know, girls and boys. The system of gender also links gender identity with biological sex and sex assignment um, such that if you are a boy, it's assumed you were male assigned at birth then that's linked to gender expression. So it's then assumed also that you have a typically masculine expression of gender. It turns out the system of gender isn't applicable for many people um, and not just people who identify as trans. This is also a valuable time to note that uh, many Western, uh, many non-Western indigenous cultures have very different systems of gender that don't link genitalia to gender, or they have you know, more than two typical gender categories and different definitions of what is masculine and what is feminine. So the gender binary as we know it is culturally bound and specific to these like white Western uh, colonial societies. Another way of thinking about gender is to imagine that rather than two boxes where everything is linked, uh, identity, biology, and expression are all separate and exist on these spectrums. So I encourage you to think about your own gender. Um, we're often asked when, when, you know, when someone says, what's your gender, to mark checkboxes or write down a label for our gender. But what if you had the opportunity to mark it along a spectrum? It turns out that when people are given the opportunity to think about their gender in this more open way, um, they're less likely to mark a fully binary gender. So this is from some research that I did with Jennifer Bryan and Christopher Overtree back in 2015, 2016. Uh, and when people were given checkboxes, almost everyone said, oh yeah, I'm a man or I'm a woman. But when we asked them to mark their gender along a spectrum, 20 to 33% of people marked somewhere away from the extreme binary. The same thing happened when we asked about biological sex. So a recent study that's gotten some press um, 
they, they ask teenagers to report their sex assigned at birth, and then they separately ask them about gender. And they didn't use a spectrum, but they gave them a whole slew of, of checkboxes. So way more options than, than people usually get. And when they did this, about 9% of teens reported a gender that was different from the sex they were assigned at birth. And many of those were these non-binary and gender fluid identities. So I highlight all of this because it's really important to understand transgender and non-binary identities as a normal part of the natural diversity that we all have in our genders. The term transgender means that someone's gender identity doesn't match their sex assigned at birth in a meaningful way. Um, on the other hand, for cisgender people, uh, gender and sex assigned at birth are more meaningfully aligned or similar. So when I talk and I say, you know, a transgender boy, I'm talking about a boy who was assigned female at birth. When I say trans woman, I'm talking about a woman who was male assigned at birth. And then people with non-binary gender identities can have any sex assigned at birth and their, and their gender identity is somewhere between man and woman, a combination of man or woman, neither man nor woman, or they describe their gender and understand their gender just totally outside of this sort of man-woman system of gender. On the other hand, a cisgender woman, for example, is a woman who is female assigned at birth. I want to highlight that this is still an imperfect way of trying to describe gender. Uh, so a spectrum does not actually capture the diversity of the human experience of gender. And many people still find that it's not a useful tool for describing their own sense of themselves. And there are people doing excellent work drawing from more expansive indigenous systems of gender or creating their own, trying to find ways of thinking about this that actually fits everyone. And that's a whole talk of its own and actually an area even beyond my um, expertise or knowledge base, but I wanna name that it's out there and there are other ways of thinking about gender. Now, when we talk about gender diversity, we're talking about gender identity and gender expression. And these are separate but related concepts. As a society, we're moving outside of stereotypes and defined gender roles. And there's an increased openness to ways of presenting ourselves that are not traditionally masculine or feminine. Um, so sometimes when people use the word non-binary to describe their gender, they're talking about they're talking about a rejecting of this binary way of thinking about roles and presentations. Um, also, people who identify as cisgender men and women are increasingly less likely to adhere to these older Western norms about gender expression. So all of this can be related to people's gender identity um, and their relationship with their bodies, but it isn't always. Uh, and I think that's important to hold on to. So that's my sort of gender 101. Um, let's get into what, what we're here to talk about, um, which is the mental health of trans and non-binary people. Um, and specifically, I'm gonna start by helping us understand the risk of distress and poor mental health. We do know that trans people, um, so adults and teens, are at greater risk of struggling with mental health issues. Uh, members of the trans community are more likely to struggle emotionally and psychologically than the general population. Um, and we're far more likely to struggle with severe issues like suicidality. Um, I have written here, like we're at a crisis level of suicidality. This can get 
twisted sometimes to present trans people as inherently unstable or unwell, but that's actually an incredible distortion of the truth. Um, mental health challenges are not inherent to being trans. In reality, we know that the increased risk is actually explained um, largely by distress about um, gender and a person's body. We call this gender dysphoria and outside factors like stigma, marginalization, and trauma. We have data to show that when trans people are able to alleviate their gender dysphoria and live lives with reduced experiences of bias and trauma, they actually have pretty good mental health. And additionally, we also know that for trans adults um, and trans young people, things like meaningful connection to the trans community, access to gender affirming healthcare, and helpful coping strategies are all helpful in reducing the impact of these known outside stressors. And we're gonna talk about some of these things more um, later. But first, I actually want to um, focus on gender affirming healthcare. I felt like this needed its own section because it's become a hot topic in the general media lately. Um, and fortunately, we have a lot of research about it. So as I just mentioned, we know that one major source of psychological distress for trans folks is gender dysphoria. Um, the most effective and in fact, the only evidence-based treatment for gender dysphoria is affirmation of a person's gender identity. Um, and often this needs to take the form of medical affirmation like hormones or surgeries. So ha have a look at this chart. Um, this is some research that I did with a group of colleagues, including um, Colt Santaman and Jaden Tai. And this shows that the depression levels of, of transgender men in gray and the depression levels of cisgender controls in blue at different time points. At wave one, the transgender men are seeking testosterone, but haven't started. And they have significantly higher levels of depression than the, than the cisgender people at that time. At wave two, after having been on testosterone for three to four months, the transgender men's depression scores had significantly improved and they were no longer more depressed than cisgender people. This was also true after 12 months of testosterone. So in the past three years, we have had a number of really solid studies demonstrating just to replicating that finding um, that trans people's mental health improves when they have access to gender affirming healthcare that they seek. I wanna walk us through some results from a 2019 study because this is one of the largest studies that we have. It's out of Sweden where they have a national healthcare system so they could actually look at healthcare use for the entire population of, of Sweden. So massive study. Um, they compared mental health treatment and serious suicide attempts in trans people, depending on whether they had had gender affirming surgery or were seeking it and hadn't, had, hadn't yet had it. And then they also looked at um, how long it had been since they'd had surgery. So here you can see that serious suicide attempts were significantly higher in people who wanted surgery, but had not yet had it than in people who had actually had the surgery, especially people who had had surgery, gender affirming surgery many years ago. Um, in fact, trans people who had gender affirming surgery four or more years prior were not any more likely than the general population to have a serious suicide attempt. So that's major because we hear a lot about the risk of suicidality 
in the trans population. And here we have results showing that that risk um, is alleviated after some time um, being affirmed in their gender. And let's look at this other outcome. So this other outcome is treatment for mood or anxiety disorder. So of trans people who wanted surgery but had not yet had it, 45% were receiving treatment for a mood or anxiety disorder. That rate is only 21% in people who had surgery 10 or more years ago. So we see a really significant difference there and the amount of time in which a person has lived in their affirmed gender post gender affirming healthcare. Importantly, however, that rate, 21%, is still about one and a half times greater than the general population. So even with improvement in gender dysphoria, trans people seem to still struggle more emotionally than the general population. But this is actually to be expected uh, because we know mental health is also affected by these other things like increased rates of trauma exposure, anti-trans bias and non-affirmation. And actually bias and non-affirmation are particularly critical in understanding why trans people are at greater risk of mental health issues. Sometimes this gets talked about as gender minority stressors. And we see this again and again in the research, transgender and non-binary people who experience rejection, discrimination, violence, and non-affirmation are at much greater risk of psychological distress. So what do I mean by bias and non-affirmation? Um, I mean, employment and housing discrimination, uh, experiencing or witnessing harassment and violence, being forced to use the wrong bathroom, having others use the wrong name or pronoun for you, others questioning your gender, um, and a hostile socio-political climate. And unfortunately, with regard to that last one in particular, hostile socio-political climate, we are seeing an all-time high in anti-trans legislation at the state level. The majority of states in 2021 have had at least one anti-trans bill proposed. So countless state legislatures have held debates and had votes on things like whether trans people should be called the correct pronouns or have access to affirming healthcare and affirming spaces. And we've seen multiple states now actually sign pretty extreme bills limiting trans people's civil rights. And this has a real impact. Uh, we don't yet have research on the impact of the 2021 wave of anti-trans legislation, but during previous periods of intense national political debate on trans rights, calls to trans and LGBTQ plus hotlines, suicide hotlines, doubled and tripled. Anecdotally, um, from my clinical work and being in the community, I can tell you that the national and international debates um, about our rights and the, the legitimacy of trans identities going on right now is directly negatively impacting the well-being and mental health of my community. Now, I want to go back to this slide for a minute. Um, so this is the slide showing that 21% of, of trans people who had, had, had surgery 10 or more years ago uh, sought treatment for mood and anxiety disorder versus 13% of the general population. This was from 2015. 
As we know, the pandemic has worsened mental health for everyone. So in the United States, the percentage of adults experiencing depression and anxiety symptoms has quadrupled since 2019, with about 41% of people in, in January of 2021 reporting symptoms of depression and anxiety compared to 11% in June of 2019. So the numbers from this 2015 study are certainly higher now. And we know that the pandemic has had specifically negative impacts on trans people in particular. Um, trans people have faced particularly harsh financial and employment impacts, and this has been even higher for uh, BIPOC trans people. For example, more than half of trans people experienced reduction in hours due to COVID, and trans people had higher rates of unemployment due to COVID than the general population. We also know that the pandemic intensified educational disparities for trans people. And again, this was worse for BIPOC trans folks, that's black indigenous and people of color um, who are people who are trans. There's been a reduction in access to gender affirming care with many folks having their surgeries and consultations delayed because of the pandemic. We also know that trans people have had to spend increased time in non-affirming home environments. And this is particularly true for youth and young adults. And similarly, they've been more isolated and had decreased connection to in-person trans community. Now, importantly, the pandemic has also seen a huge shift to online community building and support. Um, and so that's been a positive outcome in that it's increased access for many trans people to things like community connection, support, information, affirmation, belonging. I just wanted to highlight this is um, a study that the HR, the HRC put out. Um, and this is from May of 2020. And in this, in their study, they found that 59% of transgender people across racial groups and 67% of BIPOC trans people reported that they were very concerned about their ability to pay bills and address accumulating debt. Um, so I, I read you some of those statistics about employment um, and that we saw the pandemic impact, uh, employment impact was higher for the trans community than the general population. Well, we're seeing an even increased disparity in terms of the pandemic impact on financial distress. Looking specifically at youth for a minute, the numbers are pretty startling. Um, so the Trevor Project just released their annual survey on LGBTQ mental health and they found that 85% of trans youth reported that, that the pandemic had negatively impacted their mental health, um, with 78% reporting poor mental health for most or all of the time during the pandemic. This is, like I said, startling, um, but it's also not altogether surprising when we consider that a huge majority of trans youth, 67%, said that their home was not affirming. And we know that's directly linked to well-being for trans people and especially for trans young people. So key to addressing the trans community's mental health risk is understanding what helps us flourish. Flourish, there we go. What helps us flourish. Um, we focus a lot on suicidality and risk of distress and that's important. Um, um, very aware that that is something we should be talking about, but I want us to also be thinking about other measures of well-being. 
So when I say flourishing, I'm talking about building relationships and participating in community. I'm talking about educational achievements and self-actualization, the pursuit of dreams and passions. Uh, when people are in severe distress, it limits this flourishing. And so I want us to sit with, you know, how many amazing contributors to society have we lost because they are too dysphoric or anxious to thrive? I'm talking about beyond the, the really awful suicide rates. There are people who are surviving, but they're not able to thrive. And so they can't, they can't change the world the way that they would otherwise. You know, how many opportunities to better society have been squashed by barriers related to anti-trans stigma? Trans women of color have started uh, proclaiming, give us our roses while we're still here. Asking people to show up, um, to, to stop showing up only to mourn deaths related to violence and suicide, but instead to also show up to make life better for trans people, uh, to make life better for trans women of color in particular. So in that vein, I wanna talk about what predicts flourishing, what leads to trans joy and trans well-being. Now we talked a lot about medical affirmation, um, like hormones and surgeries, and, and um, I gave you the numbers there that shows that those things lead to well-being and greater well-being. Social affirmation is just as important. Social affirmation being the ability to live in and be seen as your authentic gender. And I wanted to name that for trans children, trans children who have not experienced pubertal changes, the ability to live in and be seen as your authentic gender um, is, it doesn't need hormones or surgeries. So simply being allowed to express their gender comfortably, maybe by going by a new name or using pronouns is all that trans children need to be affirmed. And for many trans adults who aren't seeking medical care, that's also all they need. Um, and it has a huge impact. So when this happens, when kids and when adults, um, but I wanna highlight the children piece of this. So when kids can live authentically in an affirmed gender, they're actually just as emotionally well, just as emotionally healthy as their cisgender peers. We also know that family support is critical. This finding shows up time and time again in, in the research literature, and you'll hear it in the stories of trans people as well. Excuse me, trans teens and adults with supportive parents by and large do well. And those without support, without supportive parents are more likely to struggle. So an example is from a study out of Canada, which found that among trans youths 16 to 24 who had very supportive parents, 72% reported being satisfied with life. For teenagers and young adults, I'm going to say that's a good number. 72% reported being satisfied with life compared with only 33% of youth with somewhat supportive or unsupportive parents. Trans youth with very supportive parents were likely to have high self-esteem. Trans youth with somewhat supportive or unsupportive parents were very unlikely to have high self-esteem. Family support is critical. Similarly, there are studies showing that in general, the more a trans person's gender is affirmed by the people 
is affirmed by the people in their lives, so beyond just parents, um, the more likely they are to do well and the less likely they are to struggle. Studies by the Trevor Project have repeatedly found that trans and non-binary youth who report having their pronouns respected by all or most people in their life are half as likely to attempt suicide. So really significant changes. Now, I wanted to end this talk by looking at some of the ways in which trans people develop resilience to the challenges that they face. Uh, even though we know that some things like parental rejection or inability to receive medical care are related to negative outcomes, they don't have to be a life sentence for people. We know that even trans folks with all the odds stacked against them find ways to survive and thrive. There have been some wonderful qualitative studies where researchers sat down with trans adults and trans young people and asked them about how they navigated the challenges they face and what made life easier for them. Some of the sources of resilience that young people and these researchers identified were uh, connection and belonging within the trans and LGBTQ plus communities, the use of helpful coping strategies like reaching out to people who can help, self-definition or the freedom to define for themselves who they are, pride in their identity or um, intersecting identities and recognition of the external oppressions that they face and hope for the future. I think it's important to name that for the majority of trans people, there's immense pride and gratitude in being trans. Um, there are lessons learned and emotions experienced that are unique to being trans that wouldn't have happened for people if they hadn't um, recognized their identity, if they hadn't been born trans, if they hadn't transitioned. Uh, so I wanted to read you some experts from um, a set of interviews with trans youth of color on why they love being trans. So Trey writes, I identify as a transgender man and I love being trans because this identity through its ups and downs has taught me to take better care of myself by seeking out community and support. It has made me more resilient and more aware of the way that society views and often misunderstands gender. And through many of my own experiences, my gender identity has taught me how to create more inclusive spaces and to advocate both for myself and those around me. Daniel said, I identify as a queer trans man and my pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a first generation Filipino American. Being trans has made me resilient. The process of figuring out my identity and coming out was a long one with a lot of meaning searching. It's motivated me to become an activist while giving me so many opportunities for self growth and introspection. Finally, Brianna shared, I identify as black queer non-binary femme, and I love being trans because it has given me the self-love and autonomy that I have always dreamed of. Coming out as non-binary has given me so much opportunity in my life to be who I am fully and love myself wholeheartedly and to change the notions and definitions of what it is to be happy and trans. I also wanted to highlight this graphic from the most recent Trevor Project uh, mental health survey. They asked LGBTQ plus youth the ways that they find joy and strength. Uh, survey participants listed hundreds of ways. 
And I'll read out just a few that the report by the Trevor Project highlighted. Feeling seen, faith in spirituality, learning more about LGBTQ plus history, seeing so much pride from others in being LGBTQ plus, self-identifying and finding others who identify in similar ways, video games, art and creative expression, unapologetic embracing of full self, working out. I actually was so glad to see working out uh, included and I wanna emphasize that um, or emphasize more broadly movement practices in part because I know that a big part of what the Promethean Project does is promote a holistic body and mind approach to wellness. And I think that for trans people particularly who can have pretty difficult relationships with their bodies, uh, finding ways to be present with their body and to build a different kind of relationship, a compassionate, collaborative, positive relationship with their body can be so healing. And so I really encourage people who are involved with movement practices and facilities and people in the mindfulness oriented um, community to think critically about how their services can be affirming and safe and accessible for trans and non-binary people. Following that thought, I, I truly think that we all have a responsibility to make society better for trans and non-binary people. We can't just look at the risk statistics and shake our heads because we know that so much of that risk is in things that can be changed. Um, so, so much of that risk can be addressed and can be minimized and it's really on us to make that change. So I really encourage you to think about how you can facilitate the abundance of these and other sources of trans joy and well-being. Um, it may be through your own actions, you know, at a systemic level. Um, it might be through interpersonal and relational openness, uh, resistance to the anti-trans legislation, and or educating people who have less informed views, and or giving money to community-led groups who are already doing this work. And I think that with that, we can move into um, questions and discussion. Uh, I have my contact information here. Uh, my email is drsebastianbarr at gmail.com. Um, and I have a consulting website here, Sebastian Mitchell Barr. Dot com and um, through that website, it also links to my own therapy website, um, which is drsebastianbar.com. So uh, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen now and let Steve hop back on. Thank you so much, Dr. Barr, that was awesome. Uh, I wanna start by apologizing for messing up the technical aspect of this. Uh, people on the Zoom call may not have noticed, but uh, the Facebook Live feed went to the wrong Promethean project page on Facebook. For some reason, I haven't deleted the, the fake Promethean project page. So ha uh, a little bit, a quarter way through, I switched it over. So the people in the event should be getting the live, live feed now. I am recording all of this and I'm going to put it together in a podcast that will come out on our uh, Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. So if you want the whole audio that will be available, and then I can also release the the video in into the event too in case anyone missed it and, and wants the comprehensive uh, complete flow to it so let me apologize by that but it's there the knowledge is there it'll be there for you and uh that's why we're all here so all right now 
admitting my fault with that. I want to move on to some questions for Dr. Barr. I think there was a lot jam-packed in the presentation, and, and thank you so much for that because I think it's really important. So we're going to open up on Facebook Live. Uh, if anyone out there has any questions, feel free to type it into the comment section, and I'll read them out uh, to the Zoom audience as well. And then anyone in Zoom, feel free to just kind of post in the chat and you know, I'll, I'll go through that and have you ask the questions or um, I can ask them for you if you don't want to do that. Um, so we're going to take a couple minutes and, and do that. But I figure I have a couple questions for you. Um, so we'll, let's start with that and uh, we'll go from there. So my question, uh, the first question I have kind of comes from my own experience with counseling and mental health. And I think I've, I've worked with a lot of trans and non-binary youth. And they've been very open in, in kind of processing with me. And I've really enjoyed connecting on that front. Uh, my question comes more with working with the parents and how to engage with the parents to do some of uh, that work that you're talking about with uh, affirming uh, identity, affirming you know, and honoring pronouns and things of that nature. Because what I find a lot of times is when I'm talking with the parent, they'll just slip back into like dead name or the wrong pronoun. And I, and I do interject and, and kind of be mindful of that. And then also stress when I, I'm using the correct pronoun. And I think they do catch on to that, but I'm wondering how, and, and I don't think most of the time it's nothing heinous, right? And it's, it's not on purpose, but I think it's a, a hard process for them to switch that in the head. I'm wondering if you have any recommendation on, on how to help with that process. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I'm gonna switch my view so that I'm not staring at my own face. <laughs> um, um, so I think, first of all, I, I, I think one of the components you already named, which is modeling, um, and so particularly if a parent is already at a place of acceptance and, or they want to be, and they're, they're kind of just getting snagged in the process, then you modeling what an accepting and affirming way of talking about their child um, will go a long way. And it makes that also an established norm. Um, that's again, not the only, um, as you mentioned, that's not the only uh, approach that's important. And you also might have parents who are coming to you and are actually far more ambivalent about supporting um, young people. So a, a few things, I think giving parents the education about what it actually is doing when they use the wrong name and the pronouns, because I think it oftentimes just gets talked about as kind of a rule or like a thing we're supposed to do. And the weight of what it feels like to a trans person to have the wrong name or pronoun or, or gender label used for them doesn't get adequately communicated. So I think stressing that and the way that I would talk about that is saying it's incredibly disorienting for a person who has a strong understanding of themselves to have to constantly have other people's alternate reflections of them get spit back at them. It creates a destabilizing experience. It also feels like a rejection of who they are and a way of saying, I, I think you're wrong or I see you as something else. And even if that's not what someone's intending when they slip up, that's oftentimes the impact. Um, and, and then 
we have these statistics that I think can be useful in saying like, if you can do the work of something as simple as using the correct pronouns, we see that have actually a really significant impact in, and that, that Trevor project statistic from this year and last year, it was about the same that uh, young people who said that most of the people in their lives or all of the people in their lives use the correct pronouns were half as likely to attempt suicide. And that's a really big difference. Um, so I, I like to use that um, as well. And then connecting parents to uh, supportive spaces where they can do their own processing and learning. Um, so there are a lot of parent organizations. In some areas, the P flags are really excellent about supporting um, parents of parents and family members of trans young people. Um, in other areas, the P flag might not be as up on trans stuff and there are other local organizations. Um, but for the most part, uh, local P flag chapters are gonna be an excellent resource for parents. Sometimes there are even process and support groups separate from that. Um, because I think it's also important uh, to let parents struggle and let family members struggle, but in a way that is contained and away from the young person or from the trans person so that that, that doesn't become the trans person's burden. Um, so anyway, I could, I, could, I could talk a lot more, but I think that's my sort of summarized version. Thank you. I, I love that too, that this idea of you don't have to hundred percent be correct all the time. You can struggle through, through that, but making sure that it's not a burden on, um, you know, the youth that you're working with. Mm -hmm. All right. Jennifer on the zoom has a question. Jennifer, do you want to ask the question yourself or do you want me to read it out to you? Uh, yeah, I, I don't mind asking. Um, so I'm a youth services librarian here in town, and I'm trying to become more aware of the words that I use and even the stories that I read and how I point things out. Just didn't know if you had any advice. I mean, some of the children that I work with are very young, um, and, and parents, you know, are referring to them as he or she. Mm -hmm. They're not even old enough to really say otherwise. So I don't, I'm just trying to just to figure out how I should start changing the way I've been doing things and I'm slowly doing it, but I didn't know if you had any advice. So I, I really like this question because I think, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting it, but I think you're talking about how do we start at a young age, normalizing that there's a lot of different ways to do gender um, and that some people who, you know, we as a society or families make assumptions about their gender being one thing are going to grow up um, understanding themselves really differently, um, that there's not just two genders. And that's a really tough thing for anyone who's working with young people or even just parents of young people because we are so ingrained in a binary gender system. And so I just think about the casual way that like, okay, boys and girls is like talked about. And that even if you don't have someone who's old enough to understand that they don't fit into one of those categories or that, that their categorization is wrong, if you start doing that at an early age, it starts limiting the possibilities and the freedom for a person to understand themselves as they grow up. So it's, it's so important and it's something that we can really shift on. Um, and I think one of the things is shifting ourselves. And so 
I encourage people to be really critical about the norms that they're taking in and how, how gendered are the spaces and how binary are the spaces that they're in or the media that they consume. Um, we now are really fortunate to have an increasing number of books and movies and TV shows that have a diverse array of um, gender identities and gender expressions uh, represented. And so I think we can normalize that. And then also those shows sometimes or those books or journalism also can model the ways that we talk about gender as well. And so we can learn and take that in. Um, I think being deliberate about following trans creators and trans writers and trans journalists is also really uh, helpful. And so um, anyone who's on Instagram, I really, I think that's a really excellent source, not just for education, because there are accounts that are just about educating people and talking about language, but also in terms of making your own life and your own community and exposure more diverse as well. Um, and, and then in, in terms of like specific ideas, and I'm trying to think there, so rethinking schools um, has some really good uh, like educational material and free resources on, on language and like, and also a developmentally appropriate language, which is to say like stuff that kids at different cognitive ages can understand. Um, and so they're a good resource and they might have links to people who are, I think doing this work more um, critically, because I think I could offer some stuff, but I wouldn't actually even be the best expert in this area. And then paying attention to just how you talk about gender generally. I, I am trying in my own life to not overemphasize gender, which is actually, a you know, so if I'm telling a story where a person's gender is irrelevant, like why do I say it, that a man did that? Or if I see someone on the street and I'm like observing something about them, why do I gender them if I don't know. So even sort of things like that and trying to correct that behavior that, and what you do then is just model a real open playing field for identity development for the young people that you're around. That's so important. I, I think how much distress would we protect people from if they hadn't felt the rigid edges of these sort of boxes and and norms and rules from an early age. Um, so thank you so much for asking that, Jennifer. All right, we're gonna jump to the Facebook Live feed. There's a question from Karina. As an inclusive mom slash family, I have some problems understanding why my non-binary child is distancing themselves from us. They are 15, so might just be the age. We adhere to their pronouns and they have included me in finding a new name. So I think this is tough because yes, adolescence in general, um, this is like a part of any adolescence identity uh, development as, as an individual is that sort of pushing away of family and um, exploring themselves in uh, sometimes in opposition to family as well as this increased need for privacy um, and uh, for building a, a world that's actually maybe explicitly exclusive of parents. And so that can feel like distance for anyone. Um, I think it's important to pay attention to, especially for trans and queer youth, because it can also be a sign um, of, of struggling that they're 
um, not maybe able to, to state explicitly. So I don't know if this is what's going on for, for um, you and your family, Katrina, but I do think it's important to pay attention to. Um, and I think that it's nice to say like, okay, family support is really important because it is, and we have the numbers, um, but we also still live in a world that is really outwardly hostile to trans and non-binary people and a world that is so extremely gendered in these very essentialist binary ways that the most inclusive family cannot protect a non-binary young person or adult from having to face um, situations that are painful and are challenging. Um, and, and you know, one of the ways that a, a young person uh, copes with um, and expresses distress is that isolation. Um, and so that could also be a part of what um, you're seeing if you have a young person who is becoming increasingly distanced and they have a trans or non-binary identity uh, that could be a manifestation of some of these other sort of social um, experiences of bias or non-affirmation. Uh, and and uh, the best thing that you can do for a youth is to, um, you know, to pay attention without being like, um, and I, actually I bet Steve can speak about this um, a lot, but that sort of balance of like attending, letting them know that you are there, keeping an eye on it, but also giving them their space and letting them have that autonomy and that privacy. Um, and then for trans youth in particular, trying to find ways to um, help them be connected to other uh, trans young people and, and trans adults and mentors or non-binary adults and mentors. Um, maybe even if you do things as a family, paying attention to the way that gender diversity is represented and, and um, uh, celebrated uh, in the events that you do together. So again, if we're going back to media, like if you ever watch things as a family, are you watching things where there are like happy trans characters or um, interesting trans characters? Um, are, are you, you know, going to pride events or, or you know, listening to podcasts that talk about this? Like what's, what's going on in the background that can also signal and reinforce that celebration? Um, but yeah, actually, I, if, Steve, if you have any thoughts, please hop on. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing with working with youth in general who, who kind of pull away is just letting them know that you're there and letting them have some control over how they utilize your support. And just knowing that co-regulation comes in so many different ways. It's not necessarily always talking about emotions or externalizing emotions or processing or resolving issues. Sometimes it's just sitting with and sitting near or cuddling or watching ridiculous shows on Netflix or Hulu or listening to music, um, depending on age. But I, I do think everything that Dr. Barr said is, is on point. And I would just challenge the concept of you don't have to have that same dynamic that you had when they were younger. It shifts, it changes, but also letting them know you're there um, and being present and, and, you know, paying attention to those signs and doing those things and showing support um, in many different ways. So, That's, I, 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 oh, go ahead, Steve. Were you 
No, I was just going to ask another question, but if you have another oh, yeah. point. If I, I wanted to respond because I, I think you said something that I want to underline, at, at, which is that, um, you know, sometimes being supportive to someone we care about, so a child, but also a friend or a partner um, who's struggling is, is sitting with them in the pain as opposed to um, trying to sort of talk it out or correct it or fix it. And I think that when we're talking about issues and this, again, I, I, I wanna be careful cause I don't know specifically what might be going on for um, the, the particular family in question, um, but for uh, young people who are struggling or adults who are struggling with oppression-based uh, pain and distress, sometimes it's really helpful to just say, yeah, it sucks. It shouldn't be this way and it's painful. And how do we sit in that together um, or, you know, when you're ready, you can talk about it. Or when you're ready, how do we do something that's going to make you feel good so that you've got that going into and that strength going into facing the stuff that's, that's hard. And so not trying to dismiss or diminish that, even though we might want to, cause we don't want it to be true. And, you know, we want to balance that with, with hope building, but not being dismissive of the real challenges people are facing. Some points. Good question. Thank you, Karina. That's great. So we have a question on the Zoom feed from Jay, and they asked me to ask the question because their background is pretty loud. So I'll do that. So a couple questions and one comment. Let's see. The comment says, great talk. And the second, the first question is, given the importance of societal shifts, what have you found to be effective strategies in motivating others to be more active in improving the broader socio-political atmosphere for trans folk? This is a good question. Um, I have found that people, well, I'll say two things. So the first is that I think personal connection is really important. Um, and I, I actually suspect, I, I know Jay, and I suspect that they um, know this um, as well, but I think for anyone who um, doesn't or hasn't thought about this, um, we know that change in uh, biases happens at a personal level more than anywhere else. Um, I think that there's a lot of I know that there's a lot of misinformation going on on the sort of larger national um, platforms of discourse. Uh, so if you're just listening to the news or reading the news, you're gonna get a mix of accurate information and misinformation and people with different agendas, some of them quite hateful, some of them ignorant. Uh, but so that's not actually gonna be the best place, I think, to change hearts and minds right now. The best place is through personal narratives and personal connection. Um, and I have really uh, I, drawn on that in my own life and said, listen, listen, like you, I know you support me. Um, you are my friends, you are my family. Uh, please hear me when I say that my community is under attack. 
um, and that they're under attack because people are misunderstanding this. Can you do some work around learning about these things so that then you can challenge it when you hear it in your life? Cause that's going to make my life and the life of people I care about better. Um, and then trying to base that around personal narrative sharing. And fortunately we have some amazing people, trans people and allies doing great work, putting people's stories out there. And so there are beautiful documentaries and beautiful in-depth articles um, of people just living their lives. And I think exposing more and more people to that and the whole array of, of the different ways that trans people. So the, I think that is a really important. And what I don't want to happen is what has happened. I, what I would like to not see continue to happen because it is happening. And it happened with basically every other civil rights movement um, or liberation movement in our history is that only a certain segment of the trans population gets to be recognized as worthy of support and affirmation. And only the people that are like the sort of easiest to be comfortable with or don't make us think too much about um, gender or race or other biases. Uh, and so I also really in encourage people to seek out and share stories of the whole like wealth of diversity and beauty in the trans community um, to try to counter that pattern. Um, there was a second point I was gonna make to Jay. Oh, I also think balancing these like really terrifying statistics, which are useful, but also with the things that we know about the like beauty and joy in trans lives. Um, and this isn't actually specifically to Jay's question, but sometimes in our efforts to recruit support and make political arguments, I think we can paint a really, really nightmare scenario um, for trans people. And first of all, it's not accurate. Like even trans people who are struggling also are oftentimes leading beautiful and important lives. Um, but also it scares trans people and it scares trans young people. And so I think doing a balance of saying, we know that these things are really harmful, please rise to action. And also imagine what you could be contributing to in terms of the beauty and the output and the connection um, if trans people's lives are made better. I love that. I think there's so much to everything you just shared. And I think breaking down those walls related to the unknown and, and not knowing uh, people who are different than you and, and living behind assumptions, I, I think doing all that stuff that you said will, will be a good stepping point to kind of move forward. All right. So Jay also has a second question. And then I'm going to hop over to Facebook live feed. Uh, question number two, oftentimes therapists neglect the broader socio-political atmosphere. What are your thoughts on how we change the training that providers get so that trans people are better supported in therapy and that there's a greater recognition of the resilience you highlighted within the mental health profession? Yeah, uh, good question and near and dear to my heart um, as a psychologist and as someone who went through uh, training and happened to be in one of the very few training programs that actually talked about trans people's mental health and um, talked about it in a meaningful way. Um, I, I mean, I think Part of the answer is in Jay's question itself, uh, which is that we need to be training people in models of conceptualizing distress that incorporate 
the external factors and the context that people are in. Um, I am a big proponent of a, a trauma-based framework for understanding oppression. Um, so we are increasingly, though not enough, talking about the way that minority stressors predict mental health. So the ways that external stigma predict mental health. I'd like to see that taken further and not just externalizing it, which is important, but also understanding the process of how that happens. And so I think a trauma model is really helpful, especially if we think about feminist models of trauma, which is, um, or of post-traumatic stress, which teach us that what we conceptualize, what we call PTSD are actually adaptive responses that helped people survive difficult circumstances. And then, um, you know, at some point stopped being helpful and cause distress or struggle in other areas. And so if we can think about what we're seeing about these, these risks, so suicidality, depression, anxiety, as actually symptoms of trauma of people trying to cope with and respond to difficult um, situations and, and these like oppressive structures and day-to-day -day interpersonal invalidations, um, we actually get a much more accurate picture of a trans person, of a client or patient's mental health and what they need in treatment. And so I think one of the most important things is starting out with training people to conceptualize outside of the, just the DSM and really thinking about uh, holistic things that incorporate the external factors as well. Um, also, uh, hiring trans people um, in uh, training uh, settings and in academic settings so that the research and the clinical work are being done. There are some really just excellent, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I hope you don't mind, Jay. Jay is one of these people who is doing amazing work. Um, and I think we need to actually be doing a lot more of that because as we know from every other struggle in history, uh, if we're not including impacted voices, we're getting a really distorted and um, incomplete picture of what's going on. All right, so we are going to jump to a Facebook Live question. Uh, Lavetta had a, a couple of comments here, so I, I want to read the comment first and then get to the question. So they had stated, grateful for this presentation, grateful that I will be able to share this information and this saved video with clients and others. Uh, the question comes from Kind of jumping on what Jennifer asked, what about people who are not family members and who wish to be affirming, uh, like Jennifer and myself? Mm -hmm. For instance, how specifically would you suggest a person ask another person about their gender preferences? So I think that this is probably talking about, you know, how do we figure out uh, what language to use for another person that is going to be most respectful of how they see themselves. Um, and this really depends on the context. So I'll tell you that, for example, as a therapist, I have intake forms. Um, and I actually don't ask a lot on my intake forms. I don't even ask people to tell me what their gender is, but I do ask them what pronouns they want me to use for the notes that I write. Um, and I'm actually really specific about, I'm not, I don't just say like, what are your pronouns? I say, what pronouns do you want me to use in this specific context? Um, and also what name would you like me to use? And so I think 
anytime that you have any kind of paperwork that's introducing you to a person, giving them space to say how they would like to be referred to is um, actually a pretty, uh, one of those least invasive ways of doing it because you're already asking them their date of birth and you know whatever else. Um, and when it's relevant, also asking about gender in a thoughtful way, which means not making anyone check a checkbox, um, using a, a write-in method, say, you know, what is, what is your gender? What is a word that best describes your gender? And if you need to know sex assigned at birth, so sometimes, you know, like in medical settings or, or if there's um, an insurance, you know, piece of it, that's sometimes necessary, asking for that separately. Um, so I think that that's one way. Uh, then in an interpersonal context, and I'm going to tell you that I have a view on this and, and I don't, um, I certainly don't speak for the entire community and some people would disagree with this approach. Uh, I try to avoid gendering people until they have told me how they want uh, to be known. Um, and this is a, an active practice because I don't just mean like I don't do it verbally. Like I try in my mind to just leave open that I don't know this about a person, just like I don't know where they grew up. Um, and I don't try to like think, oh, like my friend Lou who grew up in like Omaha, you know, I think, oh, my friend Lou, I don't know where they grew up. Like, <laughs> you know, so I think um, I, I try to leave open how that person's gender is. And then I speak about them in that way. Like I use they, them pronouns or I don't use pronouns and I, I try to keep that open. Um, it can feel really invasive to be asked what your gender is or even what pronouns you use if you don't have a close relationship with someone. Um, and so I think you have to sort of be careful of that. Um, and it can also feel really othering if you're only asking one person that. Like if you're not asking everyone who's walking into your store, for example, what name they want to use or what pronouns they want to be used, then the one person that you ask is going to know that you're asking them for a reason. And that actually oftentimes doesn't feel affirming. So trying to kind of make it a broad process also. Um, and then asking casually. Um, and, oh, oh and introducing your own pronouns. So I think that's another way of being like, I'm not doing this for you because it's like some big thing. This is just how I try to like relate to people. Um, so when I introduce myself to people in a clinical setting, um, and I guess I didn't do it verbally today, but you'll see I have my pronouns in my um, Zoom signature. But so if I'm like meeting someone for the first time, I'll say, you know, hello, I'm uh, Dr. Barr, but you can call me Sebastian. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. Um, what pronouns would you like for me to use and what, what name do you go by? Sort of easy as that. And then as you're getting close with someone, certainly you can have more um, conversations about your own experience of gender and their experience of gender, but that's like at a, at a more sort of intimate level. That's fantastic. I think that that's an amazing point because I've talked to people in the past about um, inclusion of their own pronouns. And a lot of times they will say to me, well, I don't, I don't really care, but I, I think taking it a step further and thinking how that can be a nice open end to, to having that discussion with others is important. Yeah. Um, so I do have 
one question, well, kind of a question comment combo for myself, and then we'll just do a, a last round of, of questions. Uh, no lightning round. I don't have any quick, fast-paced questions for you <laughs> today. probably for the best. <laughs> uh, so my question kind of goes, goes to what you mentioned before about awareness on mindfulness. So it's twofold. Um, the first is, you know, we have this general concept of mindfulness in our culture, in wellness, in mental health, specifically, it's kind of a buzzword. But I think an important part to understand is the general concept of mindfulness isn't the same for everyone. And you, you had alluded to it in your presentation a little bit. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more on that and how to work with someone or support someone through practices of mindfulness that is inclusive of, you know, their identity, but also trauma that they may be going through, whether oppressed or specific traumas related to, Hey, just sit still and pay attention to the environment. That's not always going to work for everyone. So I'm wondering if you have some tips on that. Yeah. This is such a good question. Definitely not a lightning round question. <laughs> um, and I've been thinking a lot about this as I've been uh, moving more heavily into clinical work um, with trans folks. Again, I had been in a setting where I had a much more diverse uh, patient panel for a while. And so this has really been on my mind. Um, and because uh, mindfulness practices have been really critical to my own well-being. Um, and one of the things that I think is really wonderful about uh, mindfulness practices, whether they be meditation-based or more sort of loosely sort of mindful movement-based, um, the sort of the overall concept of observation without judgment. And there are many stages, I think, of a, a trans person, um, trans and non-binary person, people's experience that where that uh, skill set is really useful. Um, so if it's in the identity exploration phase, so much of identity exploration is about shedding other people's expectations of you, dealing with the shame or anxiety that might come up with that, circumventing that. And so work that you can do where you're just ob observing your own reactions and all the layers of reactions without being harsh about any of them is so critical to getting to know yourself. Um, and so for me, sometimes like I'm not telling someone we're doing a mindfulness-based practice. I'm just kind of guiding and modeling that openness to, oh, and what, what are you finding that you're reacting to in that? Or like, um, you know, it sounds like there's a part of you that's saying this. Uh, are there any other parts that you're hearing from um, or wow, you, it, like, it sounds like that's a really shameful part. Is there a way to like sit with that a little differently? You know, any kind of that guidance and it depends on the clinician or the, a person who's not in the clinical space or if you're doing it on your own, the kind of language that you use around that, but doing that kind of exercise of observing and not judging and holding compassion. Um, and then if you are doing more explicit mindfulness, I actually have this fantasy of working with some people to develop um, guided meditation specifically for the trans community. Um, because there's, I, I think there's like so much untapped, um, like just power in that. Um, and, and in that the, the power of visualizations and the power of drawing from the strength of the trans community or, um, 
envisioning different pieces of yourself. I just, anyway, I could go on. And, um, but I, I, I think that there are some adaptations that are useful that are going to be helpful to particular people. And so um, another thing that can come up in particularly in movement or somatic focused mindful practices is that if a person's experiencing a lot of dysphoria, um, the same is true with other sorts of bodily trauma, um, that can be a really unsafe way of engaging. Um, it can lead to dissociation and checking out or just emotional dysregulation because part of how a person is getting through the day is by avoiding thinking about these sources of, of, of distress and these triggers of distress. Um, and so knowing who you're working with and what comes up for them and also being able to kind of titrate as you're doing it is also useful because you don't have to be doing a like, okay, now pay attention to your shoulders and do a body scan. And where's that to be moving towards a more mindful stance. And so there are people for whom that will be really healing, reconnecting with their body, but there are going to be people who can probably tell you, or you'll learn very early on where that's not where they're able to be right now. Um, I also then think again, sort of movement focused stuff. So um, I, mindful walking is something that's really like interesting and cool to me and can be like a nice, I think for people for whom walking is not a source of distress or a challenge that I think that can be a fairly benign movement to pay attention to and practice that kind of um, mindset. Um, and then working with people around their own sort of strengths and interests. So uh, I've, I've heard from people who feel really connected to their gender when they are lifting weights or when they're dancing. And there are ways to help people turn that into a really present focused, mindful exercise. Awesome. All right, last call for any, any questions for Dr. Barr. I think we're good. So Dr. Barr, thank you uh, for coming in and presenting today. You know, we're all honored and um, more educated for the presentation, but you know, just I, I myself am very gracious for you coming in and uh, helping the stigma is curable movement that we're trying to put in place. And I, I feel like the more we can do this, the more we can kind of break down those us versus them circles that exist in society and, and really hold uh, space for each other. So thank you. I love that. I really appreciate it, Steve. This is just, this has been great. And um, I think you're sharing a platform with a really important area. And I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. Um, and I'm grateful for your work in general. So thanks for having me. If anyone has any questions that come up in the future, Dr. Barr left his information. Um, feel free to outreach or if you want to contact me, I can pass it along too. Bye, everyone.